Our Old Testament lesson and our sermon text is Ruth chapter 2. These are the words of God. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please, let me, go after, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who has come back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up. And went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said also, Ruth the Moabitess said, He said also to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, Daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and your kindness to us in your son Jesus. Open our eyes as we look at it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're continuing our reading through the book of Ruth together, and we're considering one chapter at a time. Last time we were in chapter 1, and we saw that God's saving purposes sometimes begin in his dark and bitter providences. Naomi and her family left Bethlehem of Judah to live in Moab because of a famine. And the story that unfolded there in Moab was devastating. Naomi lost her husband and her sons and her homeland and her status. All that Naomi has left at the end of chapter 1 is faithful Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the Moabite. And the book of Ruth has an incredible symmetry to it that we'll see as we work our way through it, in that by the end of the final chapter, by the end of chapter 4, God redeems every loss and supplies every lack that Naomi complains of at the end of chapter 1. He even goes beyond what Naomi lost in chapter 1. By the end of the book, God has used her story of suffering to work his redemptive purposes in the world. Though at this point in the story, Naomi can't see that. And actually, by, at the end of the story, Naomi never fully sees the import of what God is doing in her life. And in that way, she's similar to all of us. We all know and trust that God is working all things together for our good, but in the midst of our life, we can't write the script. We don't know exactly what God is up to. We said that there is a place in the Christian life for mourning the hard providences of God while at the same time trusting Him in hope. We also picked up on the theme of hesed, or covenant loyalty. We said it's a word that's translated variously throughout the Old Testament as either loving kindness or mercy, kindness, steadfast love. It, en- it encapsulates all of these things. It's the kind of love that God has for us in Christ. In Christ, God identifies with us. Or to put it another way, God is someone 
who loves his neighbor as himself, which is an important theme in chapter 2. Chapter 1 ended on a glimmer of hope. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem just as barley harvest is beginning. And today in chapter 2, that crack of hope, that glimmer of hope widens out as we're introduced to Boaz, a potential kinsman redeemer. Remember that for Naomi to be truly restored, she needed to keep her land, to be able to pass it on. She needed a husband and an heir from her own people, from her own clan, in fact. And the author of Ruth takes great pains to point out that Boaz just might be that person. Here's a few verses. In verse 1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. And again, in verse 3, it says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And they remind us, who is of the family of Elimelech. And again, in verse 20, the author's, uh, Naomi tells Ruth that this man is a relative of ours, a close relative or a kinsman redeemer, perhaps. He might be the answer to Ruth and Naomi's problem. But more than that, Boaz is a man who, like Ruth, is motivated by and displays Hesed, this strong covenant love. What I'd like us to focus on today, though, is how Boaz shows his kindness, his Hesed, through the law of God. Even more than Ruth, the actions of Boaz, we will see, are symbolic. They're a type, a picture of God's love for us in Christ, our kinsman redeemer. So let's walk our way through chapter 2 and meet Boaz. Verse 1 says, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Boaz is described here as a man of great wealth. The Hebrew word is gibor, which also denotes valor or strength or stature or virtue. In 2 Samuel, it's the same word that's used of David's mighty men, his elite soldiers. And remember our setting in the book of Ruth. It's in the times of the judges, where battles are common. And so I think we should take this word gibor in, in a full sense. He was a man of great wealth. Sure, we can see that as we read through the chapter. But Boaz was probably also some kind of warrior or nobility. We might even call him some kind of chieftain. But the word also denotes virtue. And I think this is one thing that the author is really after um, in describing Boaz as a gabor. In chapter 3, Boaz will use an equivalent female expression for Ruth. And so by setting up um, calling Boaz a gabor, we're, we're supposed to see Ruth and Boaz as a good match. Here's a noble man, a virtuous man, and then we're going to see in chapter 3, and we've seen a little in chapter 1 also, that Ruth is a virtuous woman. We're supposed to see these people as compatible. And so diligent, faithful, virtuous Ruth leaves to go glean 
in the fields on behalf of Naomi in verse 2. What does, it, what does it mean when it says that she went to glean in the fields? Gleaning was a, a type of charity, a, a way for God's people to provide for the widow or the foreigner or the poor or others who needed it. This was the exact reason that Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. They hear that the Lord has visited his people by providing them bread and they're going to go back to Bethlehem and take advantage of these gleaning laws in order to get by. The law stipulated that when you harvested your crops, you weren't to take all that you could. It's sort of a a mandated non-frugalness that was required of all the Israelites. You were to leave the edges of your field and anything that dropped in the harvesting process for others to come by so that they could have something to eat also. Leviticus 19, 9, and 10 is one place where we find the gleaning laws. Leviticus 19, 9 and following says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor And for the stranger, I am the Lord, your God. So this was was the law that Naomi and Ruth are are going to work under. And actually, in some places of the world, in in more agrarian societies, there there are similar laws to this still in place. I had a friend when we lived in Atlanta who was from Afghanistan. And uh, we would read the Bible together. We were talking through the Old Testament at one point in talking about the gleaning laws. And I said, yes, this is kind of strange. In America, we don't really have, you know, anything exactly like this with our farming or with our businesses. And um, do you have any, you know, is there anything like that in your country? He was like, oh, yes, we still have laws that are, that are very much like this. Um, in, in our country, at least in his area, you, you had to just allow someone to come into your field and they could take whatever they could just eat at that moment. They couldn't come and maybe harvest your whole field, but whatever they could carry off with them if they were hungry, if they wanted lunch, they were allowed to do. And he said that all of the Americans that he knew and worked with that were, that were over there really enjoyed whenever they found out about these laws, you know, in conversation um, because they got a lot of free lunch out of it. So this, this kind of thing still happens in some parts of the world. And we'll go through, there are other examples of the gleaning laws in the Old Testament that we'll look through. But this, in basic, is what Ruth is going out to do. She's going to gather the leftovers from the harvest so that she and Naomi can have something little to eat. And notice in verse 3 that it says that she happens to come to the field belonging to Boaz. Now, the young adults know from our study through the Heidelberg Catechism, that all things come to us not by chance, not by happenstance, but by God's fatherly hand. Um, we, the author of Ruth doesn't believe that anything happens by chance either. He's using that phrase to clue us into the fact that this is God's hand at work. This is not orchestrated by Ruth. It's not orchestrated by Boaz. She's out looking for an inviting field, and she happens to come to the one belonging to Boaz. 
And whenever we see God at work in stories like this, in the details of people's lives like Ruth and Naomi, it teaches us to trust him in his providence, in his care, his fatherly hand in our life. We talked about that point at length last time, but there's one, one application from it that I think we should stop and make. Um, and that's that God's providence is a great motivator to prayer. God's providence, the knowledge that God is in control of all things, is a great motivator to prayer. Um, what I want to point out is interspersed throughout the book of Ruth, you'll notice there's, there's all these blessings, there's all these prayers. And um, Ruth coming to Boaz's field is actually just the beginning of the outworking of the blessing, the prayer that Naomi prays for her in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Naomi says to Ruth, The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And so Naomi has, has pronounced this blessing on Ruth. She's prayed for Ruth that Ruth would find rest in her husband's house. And here we see Ruth wandering, happening to come into Boaz's field. Later, Boaz will ask that Ruth be given a full reward for her kindness. And Naomi, at the end of the chapter we saw, will bless Boaz. And as the story progresses, we'll see God fulfill these blessings, fulfill these prayers in startling and complete ways. And it ought to encourage us to pray to God as well. Does the knowledge of God's providence, the knowledge of God's control over even the details of your life, does it encourage you to pray to Him? It should. It should encourage us to go to our Heavenly Father. In verse (laughs) 4, in verse 4, Boaz comes to check on the reapers in his field. And we see his greeting to them, the Lord be with you. In their response, the Lord bless you. The author is trying to clue us in again to the fact of his high character. In verse 5, he said to the servant in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers and among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So we've seen a little bit of Ruth's character in chapter 1, particularly her faithfulness, her covenant love for Naomi. Um, But here in chapter 2, we get a little bit more of Ruth's character also. She's diligent. She's hardworking. The emphasis of the foreman's report is clearly that she's a hard worker, that she's up early, she's been here from morning, she's only taken a short break. So Boaz says to Ruth in verse 8, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and draw from what the young men have drawn. 
Boaz calls Ruth daughter. Some commentators take that as a clue that perhaps there's a, a large age difference between Boaz and Ruth. Maybe Boaz relative or Ruth relative to Boaz is, is much younger. He's, he's a much older man with this great estate. But I think there's something more going on there. It's important that he's using a familial term, familial language to address Ruth. Think about it from her perspective, coming as an outsider from Moab into a country where these people have not had, especially in the book of Judges, don't have good relations with each other. Uh, the, the Moabites in particular were thought of as particularly unclean to the Israelites. And here we have um, a widowed Moabite woman who's obviously poor. She's taking advantage of the gleaning laws. And here she is in the field. Uh, how important must it have been? How, um, what a comfort it must have been for Ruth to hear this familial language from Boaz, calling her daughter. Listen, my daughter. Boaz is fulfilling his duty to provide for the poor, and as it turns out, he actually is also fulfilling family obligations, even though we know this because the author has set this up. But Ruth is now his extended family through, no, uh, through Naomi. And Ruth has gone so far as to identify herself with Naomi. So Boaz is, is fulfilling this Levitical requirement to care for the poor and the outsider, but he's also providing for his family at the same time. But I want you to notice how Boaz goes about obeying that law that we just read. Leviticus 19. Do you remember, do you remember what it said? It said that God's people had to leave the edges of their field and whatever happened to be dropped during the middle of the harvest. Whatever is on the edge of the fields and the leftovers, in other words. But here in that speech, Boaz is not allowing Ruth to come into his field. He's inviting her to come into his field. He's practically demanding that he be the one who is going to give the charity. He says, I want to be the one who's going to provide for you. He's saying, stay close by my young women. Come to the very front of the line. Be the first one to get whatever drops. And he's saving her a lot of time by providing her with water. If you've ever hauled water from one place to another in a bucket or a jerry can, or if you've drawn water from a well by hand, you know that is hot and tiresome uh, work. And by having a ready source of water, he's saving Ruth a ton of time and energy. And he's also offering her protection. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? I'm putting my shadow over you, as it were. If, If anyone messes with you, then they're messing with me. He's assuring Ruth that she can glean in safety. And even further than that, if you look farther down in verses 15 and 16, you'll see later that she's allowed to take from the actual sheaves themselves. She's coming in off the margins, as it were, into the middle of the field, and she can take from the sheaves. And he even tells the young men, drop some grain on purpose. You know, make sure that her work is really fruitful. So, Most people look at this and they say that Boaz is going well beyond 
what the law commanded in Leviticus. But that's, that's not what's happening. What Boaz is doing is fulfilling the law. He's filling it out. He's filling it up. Boaz not only does what the letter of the law requires, but he grasps the spirit of the law. He understands what God is up to in giving the command in Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, offers the basis of the gleaning law. Listen to Deuteronomy. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In verse 22, And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Why was Israel to provide for the poor? God points to Israel's past as slaves and points out how he had cared for them. The Israelites were once in the position of having no one to care for them, no one to provide for them, and God stepped in and redeemed them. And so now, in turn, God commands Israel to do the same for others who are in a similar position. In effect, God says to them, you are to imitate my grace toward you by showing the same kind of grace, the same kindness, the same hesed, the same mercy to people who are in similar situations. If you were in Israel, if you were in Israel in the time of Boaz and you saw a stranger, if you saw someone from another country, you were supposed to say to yourself, I, I too am a sojourner here in this land. God owns all of this land. I also am a stranger here. When they saw the poor, they were supposed to say, I myself was once also a slave and poor, and all of this that I have, everything that I have, has come to me by the grace of God. Boaz understands this. Boaz, in his mind, God's law and God's love are one. Or rather, God's law is an avenue by which he may extend or exercise his hesed, his kindness toward others. For him, the law is a way that he might love his neighbor as himself. We often think that that the two great commands, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, we think of as a New Testament teaching. This is something that Jesus um, extended that added to the law, but that's not true. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is actually a quote from the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament teaching. Does anyone know where in the Old Testament you shall love your neighbor as yourself is? That's right. It's Leviticus 19. It's the same chapter as the first gleaning law that we read. Boaz gets this. And if we, if we take a step back and we look at a larger biblical history, we notice there's something else interesting about Boaz. If we were to go back through different parts of the Old Testament and look at the different genealogies, we'll see that Boaz's father was a man named Salmon. 
And there's something interesting about Salmon, and it's not that his name, if you, if you see it printed, it looks like Salmon, which is, is interesting, but that's not, that's not the point here. What's interesting about Salmon is that Salmon was married to Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. When Israel gets into the land of Canaan and they take over Jericho, um, there's a Canaanite woman, Rahab, who defects over to Israel, and, and Salmon, Boaz's father, marries her. So Boaz's mother was herself at one time an outcast and a foreigner incorporated into Israel by faith, just like Ruth, just like the woman that he's meeting in the field. His mother was in a similar situation. Boaz grasps why God has his laws, both from the scriptures explicitly what God lays down in Deuteronomy, but also from personal experience. And I want you to think, for someone who's growing up in the land, for someone who's growing up in the land of Israel, how easy would it be for him to begin to think of that land a few generations after the conquest as his, as something that he had by right or by effort? How easy would it be for someone to be in that situation and work the land for 30, 40, 50 years and and start to resent those strangers, the poor, the foreigners, the widows that come in every year, year in and year out, and take little bits of his harvest or what he thinks of as his. How easy is it for us to do the same things for our businesses, for our money, our possessions, to resent God's commands, to tithe, to give to the poor, to look out for widows and orphans. There's something in us that just that rises up and says, no, I've worked for everything I have. I've been diligent. I've been hardworking. It's mine by right. And that is, that is true in one sense. But we should never forget that God is the one who gives us strength to work. He gives us the family we have, the time and the place we live, the security that we need. And he puts it all together and he gives it to us by grace. The Apostle Paul asked the Corinthian church the question, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. It's all the gift of God. The land, though, for the Israelites is not just their economic base. It's also a picture, a symbol of their salvation. The land, after all, was the promise that was given to them by God when he redeemed them from the grip of Pharaoh. It's easy, especially if we've grown up in the church, to forget that our salvation also is not ours by inheritance or right, but by grace. And when we do, we can begin to despise those outside. We were all freed from the poverty and tyranny of our sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus in pure, unmerited grace. Even if you can never remember a day that you did not know and love the Lord, that is by the grace of God. And if we forget that, if you forget that, you'll begin to pray prayers like the Pharisee in the temple. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not greedy. I'm not a liar. I'm not covetous. I'm not a murderer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to me. Instead, when we see the poor, when we see the widow, when we see the homeless, or we see anyone caught in sin, our first reaction should not be to mentally scold their poor life choices. Our first reaction should be to remember that we also are sojourners on the earth and that we have everything that we have by the grace of God. In his book on Christian doctrine, Augustine says this, quote, Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up a twofold love of God and love of neighbor, does not yet understand the Scriptures as he ought, end quote. The way Boaz treats Ruth here shows that he has both experienced the grace and mercy of God and that he understands that God's laws and his commands are given to communicate that same grace and mercy to others. For her part, Ruth is overwhelmed by Boaz's kindness and prostrates herself saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? When we come to the Lord, when we come to Jesus, we come like Ruth into Boaz's field, empty-handed and needing his mercy. We know that we haven't done anything to earn God's favor or merit our status. Her question to Boaz is the same question that every true Christian utters to God, why have I found favor in your sight? When we truly grasp the grace of God in our life, then we will respond the same way that Ruth does. And what's the answer to that question? Verse 11, Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people you did not know before. Boaz sees Ruth. Ruth's commitment to Naomi for what it truly is, a commitment to God, a commitment to Yahweh. This language of leaving father and mother and going to a strange land is is an echo of Abraham's call in Genesis 12. Ruth has the same faith as Abraham. Ruth has the same faith that you and I do. And this is what motivates Boaz's kindness. It's what motivates the Lord's kindness to us. That image of coming under the wings of God there in verse 12 is one that we'll return to next time in chapter 3, but it becomes a favorite picture of David, Ruth's descendant, in the Psalms. We can think of Psalm 91 and others where David says that he's hiding under the shadow of God's wings. Surely this story of Ruth coming to dwell under the wings, under the shadow of God, informs Uh, that image that David uses over and over again. In 13, she says, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Did you pick up on that? She says, 
Boaz says, you've come to the Lord. You've come to the Lord to find refuge. And she says to Boaz, let me find favor in your sight. For you, Boaz, have spoken kindly to me. In a similar way that Ruth and Naomi begin to merge and be identified with one another throughout the book, the actions of Boaz and the actions of the Lord start to be difficult to separate. Is Ruth finding mercy from the Lord or is she finding mercy from Boaz? Well, it's both. And that's okay because we're supposed to see that Boaz is a really obvious type, a really obvious picture of Christ that God is working in this redemption in and through him for Ruth and Naomi. God's mercy and kindness comes to us in Christ, but we see it also comes to us through his other people. The final phrase there, though I'm not like one of your maidservants, grammatically allows a rereading with hindsight against Ruth's intent as I will not be like one of your maidservants. So there's a, an interesting ambiguity there. And Ruth is usually played as a romance, as, um, as there's this great spark between Boaz and Ruth. And um, it, it's, in the, it's in there, but it's very subtle. And this is one of the few places where maybe a mature reader who knew the end of the story might chuckle when they read, like, oh, she's not going to be like one of the servants. Um, but it's really not a main point of the text. In verse 14, Boaz says to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. This is another way of Boaz saying to Ruth, you are part of my household. Remember how he's, he's already used the familial language called her daughter. Sharing a meal like this is very significant. To take in an outsider from another country, from a despised um, country, and raise them up to eat with them is, is an astounding mercy. Boaz lifts up Ruth, the widow and the Gentile, to sit with him at his table just like God does for us. God in Christ welcomes all of us to his table. God in Christ has met us in our lack, in our need, in our sin, and sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead and provide all that we need. And here we are, gathered together, the outsiders, the Gentiles, the widows, the unclean, and God invites us to his table. We also have taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, And part of what that means is being fed by him in the supper just as Ruth was fed at the table of Boaz. We have fellowship with Jesus every week in the Lord's Supper just as she has fellowship with Boaz. And just like Boaz, God sees to it in our prayers and in our worship and our singing that our work is astoundingly fruitful. At the table... Boaz gives the reapers the the charge, make sure that she gets grain, that her work is fruitful and abundant. And when God raises us up to sit with him at his table, we are filled and satisfied with God's grace in Christ. And just like Ruth, we also have leftover that we might go out and give to the world, invite them to know God through Christ, our kinsman, Redeemer.
also. In verse 17 through 19, Ruth finishes her work for the evening. She takes all that she's been able to harvest and uh, threshes it out, and she goes home and brings it back to Naomi. And in verse 19, her mother-in-law says to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Naomi knows that this, that what Ruth comes home with, an ephah of barley, um, some scholars think it's around 30 pounds of barley after she's threshed it all out. So the take-home of what she comes home with is, is like 30 pounds of grain. Naomi knows that this is not a normal take-home for gleaning. Gleaning is a subsistence kind of living, a subsistence kind of work. You come home with a, full, a few handfuls, and maybe you can make a few loaves of bread to get by. But Ruth stumbles in carrying a month's worth of pay in one day, plus all of the leftovers from lunch. Ruth, instead of coming home with, with enough to make a, a little a few loaves of bread, she comes home with enough to feed them for several weeks. So she tells her mother-in-law, the man with whom she had worked that day and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. The effect of hearing Boaz's name When Ruth says, the man with whom I work today is Boaz, the effect of that name on Naomi is palpable. This is where she starts to realize that perhaps things are turning around for her. Boaz is not merely a generous benefactor who's taken pity on an impoverished family, an impoverished Moabite, but he is a relative whose kinship to Naomi suggests that he just might be the solution to their predicament. She reacts by proclaiming a blessing on Boaz and alerting Ruth to the fact that Boaz might be their redeemer. Naomi has this twin confession in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1 she says, The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. God's providences have been difficult for me. And in chapter 2, she says, God has not forsaken his kindness, his hesed, his mercy for the living and the dead. And that's a confession that we can all make. We all know that God can send us difficulties, but God does not forsake his mercy If you read her blessing, though, in verse 20, there's an interesting literary ambiguity there. It's not clear from the wording. Is Who is it that maintains his kindness to the living and the dead? Again, in verse 20, Blessed be he of the Lord, that is Boaz, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Who is that who has not forsaken his? His kindness. If it's Boaz, then we read that as it's a commendation of his um, love for Naomi's family and his hesed 
and maximally, maximally fulfilling God's law. And that's, that's true, Boaz is doing that. But if you read it as a, the blessing referring to God, then it shows, again, her realization that, that God is for her, that God is merciful, and God is kind. So, like we said earlier with Boaz, what, what is it? Is this God's work? Is this Boaz's work? What's going on here? And as we'll see as the story continues, it's both. It's over and over again we'll see God working in and through His people and in and through His providence to extend His mercy and kindness to us. Verse 22 concludes the story. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed by, close by, the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. These verses here, they're a summary statement. Just like chapter 1 ended by pointing ahead to what's to come, the same thing happens here at the final verses of chapter 2. It's harvest time, and some of those problems that were raised in chapter 1, some of the losses, some of the lack that we saw, are beginning to be filled. Naomi and Ruth have enough to eat. They have enough to survive through Boaz's generosity, through God's mercy to them, through Boaz. But there's also still some of these problems that haven't been dealt with yet. We still don't have a husband, and we still don't have an heir. And these issues are brought up in this last verses. So where is the husband? Where is the heir? How are we going to have all of this resolved? We know that God is merciful and kind, but how is he going to redeem this situation? Well, if you come back next week, you will find out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work and your kindness to us through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we consider your word throughout this week, that you would continually make us more and more like him, that you would give us grace, that we would extend your mercy and kindness to others. In Jesus' name, amen.